inspiring, intelligent, daring, and brave, determined. These are the words that describe a woman so persistent, so unshakable, and filled with confidence that she was able to overcome her own limitations and then go on to inspire others around the world. Who is this woman, you ask? It is the unstoppable and brilliant Helen Keller. And on this episode of Quarter Mile's Travel, we tell her story. It's Quarter Mile's Travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita, one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be On a spring day in 1887, at a black well pump outside of her home, a young girl's world changed. Although blind and deaf, on this day, her world would become clearer, much more aware, much more awake and understood. Helen Keller spoke. With cool water flowing over her hand, her teacher Ann Sullivan tapping letters onto her palm, she was freed from a world of darkness to one of enlightenment. And that day was the start of making the world more accessible, not only to her, but to many others. This is the story of Helen Keller, whose image is on the reverse side of the Alabama State Quarter. To tell her story, I asked three ladies who know the Helen Keller story very well. Susan Pilkington, the executive director at the birthplace of Helen Keller, and at the Perkins School for the Blind, Susan Coit, who is an archivist and research library assistant, and Jennifer Arnott, a research librarian. I started by asking Susan from the birthplace of Helen Keller in Tuscumbia, Alabama, to tell us not only a little bit about her childhood, but also about her parents and her sibling. Here's what Susan shared with me. Uh, Helen's parents uh, was Captain and Mrs. Keller. Uh, Captain Keller was a Confederate officer in the cavalry. Uh, his, her mother came from Memphis, Tennessee. And so basically her mother was a, uh, what we would call today a stay-at-home mom. Uh, she helped raise the children and, and do things around the house. Uh, Captain Keller was a lawyer, a newspaper writer, and we still have his old printing press located in our local newspaper office. Helen actually had two half-brothers. Her father had been married once before, and the first wife died at a very young age, leaving him with the two sons. So a few years later, he met and married Kate Adams, uh, and they had Helen. She was the oldest of the second family, and then she had a sister, Mildred, and then uh, brother Phillips Brooks Keller. So there were actually five siblings in the Keller family. Helen was born a normal child, and at the age of 19 months, she had a very high fever 
but left her deaf and blind. And they said it could have been measles or scarlet fever, but her sight and hearing was taken away from her at 19 months. So, you know, for 19 months, she could hear and see, and then all of a sudden, she couldn't hear or see anything. And I think a lot of that had to do with her early childhood of being what we would call uncontrollable or spoiled. Her family just let her do whatever she wanted to do because they didn't know how to cope or deal with a deaf-blind child. How did her parents determine that she was deaf and blind? Well, Mrs. Keller, uh, Helen was sick, of course, and was running a fever. They called the doctor. The doctor came, and then she started talking to Helen, uh, and they said it was just like a stare. And Mrs. Keller noticed that her eyes wasn't moving, and she would not hear her. She would not respond to her. So that's how they found out that Helen was deaf and blind. And the local doctor, I guess, confirmed it. Yes, that's true. Well, you said she was unruly and everything, but how, how were they able to focus on, on what she needed and provide for her needs? Well, that did not happen until Ann Sullivan arrived in 1887, and that was shortly before Helen's seventh birthday. And when Ann arrived, she watched Helen eat out of everyone's plate, throw temper tantrums, and Hel- uh, Annie did not like that. So she tried to discipline her, and she and Captain Keller actually had words. And Anne realized then that she had to take Helen away from the house and the parents to teach her her manners so she would rely on her. So that's the reason why Helen and Annie went to the small cottage next door to the main house. Uh, But they put Helen in the carriage, And they drove her all around the grounds, which was 640 acres. And Helen thought she was going far away, but she was actually just coming back next door. They stayed there two weeks. Annie brought her back into the house. And guess what? She started throwing temper tantrums. And Annie took her from the table out to the pump and started spilling water over her hand as the, wa- as the water flowed over her hand. And at that time, Helen realized what Annie was spelling was the coolness that was coming over her hand. And they said she learned over 30 words that day. Mm-hmm. So it was like the key that opened her brain. She was highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said she had an IQ of 160. Annie certainly had her hands full. But I wanted to know from Susan... If Annie was the only teacher that Helen had, or did she have other teachers as well? Annie Sullivan was her first teacher and the only teacher until they went to Perkins School in Boston. And many people asked, why did she go all the way to Boston? Well, Alexander Graham Bell told Captain Keller about uh, Annie Sullivan, and that's how she came to Tuscumbia. And then there were no schools for the deafblind in the South. Now, we had uh, the uh, Alabama Institute uh, in Talladega, but in the 1800s, you had to be deaf or blind. You could not have both disabilities. So, therefore, she had to go away to school. And so they went to Perkins School in Boston. Well, what was going on in Alabama at the time? What was Alabama and Tuscumbia? What what was it like at that time? Yes, well, actually, Tuscumbia grew up around the Keller home. And, of course, uh, Captain Keller, it was after the uh, Civil War. And, of course, money was tight. Uh, 
uh, in the South, uh, all over the South. And so they had to, you know, plant the crops and, and uh, harvest them. And uh, they had to, you know, everyday business. That's about what it would be uh, in today's terms. We have about 11,000 now in Tuscumbia. That's our little population. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we have so much, not only in Tuscumbia, but all over Colbert County. Uh, you know, we are the hit recording capital of the world, and people come here uh, rec to record music. But, of course, that wasn't going on during the 1800s. But it was just more of a rule of uh, farmers, crops, and, and things like that. At that time, Tuscumbia and Alabama were not in a position to help Helen with the skills she needed to advance in her life. I asked Susanna and Jennifer with the Perkins School for the Blind to tell us about Helen's experience at the school. Jennifer shares how the Kellers learned about the Perkins School for the Blind. Her parents and Helen meet Alexander Graham Bell and they ask him for guidance. And he basically aims them at Perkins School for the Blind. Um, there had been previous experience with teaching other children who were deafblind uh, communication, literacy, all of those those skills, all of that education, uh, most notably Laura Bridgman, who had come to the school um, in the 1830s. And so was about 50 years older than Helen at this point, and um, who had been written about by Charles Dickens and his American notes in the 1840s. Um, so like she was very well known at that point and, and there was material about her out there. Um, in 1887, her father arranges for Anne Sullivan to be Helen's teacher. Um, Anne Sullivan arrives in March, and the, the famous incident at the water pump that is sort of the story that everybody knows about Helen Keller uh, takes place not that long afterwards. It's only about a month on April 5th. And from there, Helen is off and learning and communicating and wanting to know everything about the world. I wanted to know more about Perkins School for the Blind and how the school got started and also how Laura Bridgman became such a big part of the school and a great inspiration to so many people like Helen. I asked Susanna to share that information with us. So this, uh, Perkins was chartered in 1829. We started with our first students in 1832. We were the first school for the blind chartered in the United States. Uh, so it took a little while to figure out how to make the school, you know, how the school was going to function. Um, our first director was Samuel Gridley Howe, who was a doctor um, and became a very uh, ardent ad educator of people with disabilities, not just blindness and deafblindness, but also intellectual disabilities a little later in his life. And so it's, we're very early in the school's history at this point. So 18, 1830s, you know, the school has not been around for very long, five years maybe at the point at which uh, Laura Bridgman gets identified. So she's living on a small farm just outside Dartmouth, New Hampshire, uh, which that Dartmouth where the university is, was still a, was a university at that point. And the medical school was doing a census of people in the area and the medical student who was doing the census in her, her small village sort of came across her, became aware of her and brought it back to the doctor who was sort of overseeing the part of the census he was working on. That doctor knew how and sort of what we have this child and could you do anything to teach her, you know? Nobody had ever taught somebody who was deafblind sort of formal education at that point. We have lots of sort of scattered references to people who had home sign um, 
skills so they could communicate sort of basic needs and food and you know activities, but not a lot of complex language um, interchange. And uh, so Laura is sort of the first person that we know of where she has abstract language. She has, um, we have dream diaries. We have tons of letters that she wrote to basically everyone. Um, some of which have survived. We, we know about many more that didn't. Um, Hal came up with a very stringent method of education with her very, he took a lot of time. Uh, deaf blindness education involves a lot of one-on-one -on -one interaction because mm -hmm. that's the way that you can convey information. Uh, so Hal sort of came up with a plan and then a series of uh, all female teachers spent hours every day with Laura sort of going back and forth um, how started by identifying an object, so a spoon, uh, and he would have the word spoon in embossed letters or word blocks, you know, something tactile. Mm -hmm. And over time and repetition, you would you would link the physical object, the spoon, to the word spoon. And then once you get the sort of more um, concrete objects, you can then move to more abstract ideas slowly. And you you did say that she was both blind and deaf. Laura. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Laura Bridgman uh, became deafblind due to scarlet fever. We're we're sure about the cause for that one. Okay. When she was about two, so so roughly the same age that Helen was. Uh, there are there there are some uh, children who who become deafblind after they've already had exposure to language. There are um, some advantages in terms of later language acquisition. Um, because they've already had some exposure, even if they don't consciously remember it. Laura Bridgman's story is very fascinating, but I also wanted to know, Ann Sullivan, who became Helen's teacher, I wanted to know if she also trained at the Perkins School for the Blind, or where did she train to become a teacher for the blind and the deaf? So uh, the first thing I always want to say about Ann Sullivan that many people don't realize is she was also visually impaired. Mm. Uh, so she was a student at Perkins. Uh, she came to Perkins after a number of years at the Tewksbury Asylum, which was basically a, a, a care home for people who had no other resources. And it was not, they were, they were overcrowded, they were underfunded, there were no resources, there were no specific facilities for children. Um, people tried to help her several times. She was blind due to trachoma, which is a bacterial disease that causes scarring in the eyes. Um, so she had several surgeries, they kept trying to improve her eyesight, it just never quite worked. Um, in 1880, she, um, managed to ask to go to school, um, ask the, the head of a commission that was visiting. And uh, he had known the Howard family very well. He knew the school very well. And so she came to Perkins in 1880. Um, she had never been to school. She graduated in, um, in 1886 as a valedictorian. So very, also a very intelligent woman um, and very committed to her education. And once she graduated, she was in this position of needing a job and trying to figure out what what she was going to do with her life. And it was over that summer that the Kellers first sort of started writing to see um, if somebody could be her teacher. Uh, we do know that she knew Laura Bridgman. Um, Perkins um, does housing and has done housing um, for a long time with students living in cottages together with a couple of staff members. And so we know that Laura and Anne shared a cottage. And, and it's, it's sort of very clear if you look at that, that that is part of how and became so familiar with tactile sign because that was how Laura communicated most of the time. Um, but she was not a trained teacher. Teacher training was still very new at that point too. So it wasn't, wasn't like being a trained teacher was the only way that you became a teacher. Uh, there, were, were, there were teacher training schools, but they were still not sort of the assumption of how you learned how to do this. 
So a lot of it was you just figured out how you were going to teach and then you taught. And if you were good at it, you kept teaching. Yeah, as Jennifer just mentioned, if you were good at it, you just kept teaching. They were definitely trailblazers. But what was Helen's experience like, along with Anne's, at Perkins School for the Blind? Susanna shares that with us. Yeah, so Anne Sullivan brought um, Helen to Perkins in May of 1888. Um, as Jennifer said, Anne had been a student at Perkins and um, wanted to sort of share that environment with Helen. Uh, the school was located in South Boston at the time, so they they were right in the middle of the city. Um, and after that visit, Helen and Anne spent nearly every winter studying at Perkins um, through 18, 1891. And Helen, um, from what we can tell, Helen really loved being at Perkins. Um, she talked about how much she enjoyed having other kids around that she could communicate with and play with. She loved the Perkins library, spent hours reading books, and she she just took took advantage of the the, the rich environment. Anne Sullivan is well known as Helen Keller's teacher, companion, interpreter, and friend. But there was another woman who was also vitally important to Helen, but she is not as well known. Her name, Mary Agnes Thompson, also known as Polly. She spent many years with Helen. I asked Susanna to tell us more about Polly. Polly, uh, in October 1914, Polly joined um, the Keller Sullivan household in Connecticut as their secretary and um, was very close with both of them. She, following Anne's death in 1936, Polly became Helen's companion and interpreter and so sort of took over for Anne Sullivan. And she was in that role for 46 years. Um, Anne is the one who taught Polly how to communicate with Helen and um, care for Helen and help her. And the three women developed a deep friendship. Um, one of their friends referred to them as the three musketeers. They, I mean, they lived together. Uh, they worked together. So they, they basically spent all of their time together. Anne and uh, Polly ended up sort of helping Anne towards the end of her life, as well as helping Helen. Um, she uh, would interpret at events. Um, they would go to dinners together. Po Polly was very um, conscious of her fashion. And so she made sure that they always were dressed very nicely and fashionably. <laughs> was Helen the same way? Was she very conscious of, of fashion and things too? Um, I'm not sure, uh, but I mean, the pictures that we have of her and Polly, they both just look fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> like any girlfriends, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to always look the best they can. Exactly. <laughs> with both Anne and Polly working with Helen, she became very proficient in reading, writing, and understanding languages. I asked Jennifer if she would share with us some of the tools that Helen used in order to communicate because there were some people that believed that maybe it wasn't all true about Helen because she communicated so well. Was she really blind? Was she really deaf? So I wanted to know more from Jennifer as to what tools she actually used 
to become so proficient. Yeah, I think I think you're right that many people are sort of are are so familiar with their own experience of of interacting with the world that the idea that it works differently for other people is is really hard to get their head around. But but Helen was a terrific communicator. Um, she people who are deafblind rely on a wide range of tools. Um, that's true for our students today, as it was for Helen. Although some of the tools are different, we now have some technology tools that are that are really wonderful and and create some more opportunities. Um, Helen used a, a combination of um, embossed type and braille, and I can talk more about that if you'd like, um, as well as tactile signs. So that's signing into somebody's hand, um, making the letter shapes there. Sometimes some other some other sign shapes uh, for tactile sign and for signing with somebody with deaf mind. It depends a little bit on if they have any usable vision or the range of their usable vision. Um, whether you're signing purely in a tactile, you know, touching their hand as you sign, or whether you are um, you are also able to use some other sign sign language. Mm -hmm. um, Helen also used um, you. You will see some photos of her out there of her putting her hand on somebody's face. And she's feeling the, the sounds made when somebody speaks, the, the ways the lips are moving, the vibrations of, of different sounds, that gives you some, some information. It's a very hard system to learn. Um, not many people be ever become very skilled at it, um, but it does give you another option when you're talking to somebody who doesn't sign or you just wanna take a break from the signing, which you know, requires you to be in a sort of specific physical position to each other. And sometimes that's just physically tiring. Well, is, the, is there a level that is considered uh, proficient for someone who is blind or deaf or, or both? Or are you always continuously learning throughout your whole life? I think that's everybody's always, you know, we hope is always continually learning through their life. So there's, there's certainly on a, an educational level sort of, is this person communicating at a level that is you know, reading, reaching a grade standard is certainly, you know, the, there are those measurements. Um, many people who are deafblind are, are sort of what are called proficient communicators, which means they're communicating on the same level as, as anybody else might be. There, you know, there are, there are people who are poets, who are lawyers, who are doing all sorts of, you know, very complex textual work, um, history, uh, historians, people doing sort of very detailed text-related work, um, where they're using all sorts of tools to access that. Um, mm -hmm. So it comes down to sort of the, the individual person's interests and the, the tools that they find most useful and the tools that are available to them. The, the other thing I sort of like to point out to people is that she knew multiple languages. We know that she was writing and working fairly regularly in English, Latin, French, and German. Um, she learned those through reading. We have examples that she wrote to Michael Anagnos, who was our second director and the director during the, the time she was at Pickens. Um, where she's in the process of learning the languages. So you can see her getting better at them. And it's, it's fabulous to sort of, um, and you know, she's eight or nine at this point, you know, how, how good is any eight-year-old at French if it's their second language or third language? Um, but it, I love seeing the progress and you can see sort of letter to letter that she's getting better at it and, and she's getting more idiomatic. And um, I, love seeing, I love seeing how that changes. Um, I, I believe there might have been some Greek in there. Michael Anagnos was Greek. Um, and, and I believe there was at least a little bit of conversation in there. And, and, she, and later in her adult life, she was also, you know, traveled around the world. So that came in very useful eventually. When we think of communication for people who are blind, we think of Braille. I asked Susanna if she would explain to us really the whole technique of Braille and how 
haven't learned Braille and used it. I think it's also um, kind of interesting and important to note that she also used different types of embossed writing. So it wasn't just English Braille. She also could read Braille from different languages uh, in different languages. And um, Jennifer could talk more about this, that there wasn't a unified system when she was learning Braille. So there were very, there was American Braille, New York Point, different kinds of Braille. And she was able to read, I think, at least six different types of embossed. Um, yeah. So to follow, follow up on that and put, a, put it a little more in context, um, the United States did not decide on a single form of Braille until 1919. So all of Helen's early life, you know, the sort of first 30 something years of her reading, uh, there are all these different systems in use. There's a letter that she wrote to William Wade in 1901, which she says, there is nothing more absurd, I think, than to have five or six different prints for the blind. And at that point, basically, if you were blind and you wanted to read a lot of stuff, you had to know all these different systems because so many books would only be printed in one system, not every system. Um, and so you sort of, if you wanted to read the book, you had to read the system it was written in. Mm -hmm. And they're all a little bit different. So embossed line type is, is in, embossed letters. If you've ever had an engraved invitation, sort of the old fashioned engraving, um, it's the same basic concept. You sort of press the paper on a metal plate that pushes the letters up. Um, it is very slow to read. Um, anytime we hand um, embossed line type to people who are, who are very skilled Braille readers, uh, they give us such a look. Um, it's just so slow. It's so awkward. It's so tactilely complicated um, under the fingers. And yet for most of the 19th century um, in the U.S., that was the system that was taught in schools. Mm. Um, the, the system that, that was used at Perkins is called Boston Line Type. It was developed by Samuel Goodley Howe um, and Stephen P. Ruggles, who was a, a printing engineer at the school in the early years. And it is more readable than the French version. And there are days that isn't saying much. Um, and then people got really innovative. And so they were trying all sorts of different systems for Braille, you know, sort of the, the dot system, which is much more easily discernible. Um, but there were at least three versions actively floating around in regular use. So English Braille, which is the, the system that we eventually stuck with. Um, American Braille, which was developed by a teacher at Perkins and uses the fewest dots for the most common letters. So theoretically it would be faster to read and write, especially write. Uh, New York Point, which has a different alignment system. Um, so, so the braille that we settled on is two columns of three dots each sort of vertically. And, and you, do, you use different combinations of those dots to indicate different letters or combinations of letters. Um, and then New York Point is two rows of dots and you might have up to six dots in a row so that you you sort of each letter by letter you're trying to figure out what's going on and it's not a standard shape necessarily and then there's a whole other complication things that people don't know about braille but if you have an alabama quarter um you can sort of begin to look at this um there's a form called contracted braille so um uncontracted braille you spell out every letter with its own braille cell um, so a, a is a cell, B is a cell, C is a cell. Um, with contracted Braille, you can have one cell that stands in for multiple letters. So there's a cell for and or the or ing. 
Um, my favorite is that if you just have a K by itself with a space on either side, it stands for knowledge. Um, so they sort of went through and figured out words that people were going to use all the time and made contractions for those. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's uh, 260, I think, contractions. I might have that number a little wrong, but hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were other systems that were, that were floating around. There's moon type, which is my favorite of the boss systems, which is sort of symbols roughly based on the alphabet shapes, but not quite. And they're simplified and they're a little easier to read. Um, and that one has been very popular historically with people who become visually impaired as an adult because they have, they're already sort of familiar with the shapes at that point. And it's a little easier to, to make the transition. Um, there, there's been a lot of conversation in the blindness community about making money more tactiles. They have been pushing uh, for a very long time to get tactile um, bills in in currency system. Some countries make it a little easier. Some countries have sort of very distinct shapes for their coins. So it's much easier to figure out what you're working with. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. is not quite as, as specifically thinking about that piece historically. There are many, many stories about Helen and her exceptional skills that she learned as a blind and deaf person. But one thing that did cause a lot of people to question whether or not she was really blind, really deaf, is her time when she was a pilot. And the story behind that is fascinating. I asked Susanna if she would share that with us. Yeah, so the she was a pilot in the sense that um, the pilot that was flying the plane made accommodations for her as they hopefully would any untrained pilot that was flying with them. Um, the pilot sat next to Helen and communicated instructions to her via Polly, who was serving as her interpreter. And the whole story was published in a 1946 newspaper article entitled Wonderful Helen Keller Flies a Plane, um, which was digitized by the Helen Keller Archive at the American Foundation for the Blind. And it explains how um, in how Helen sat next to the pilot and he he was actually flying the plane, but she was sort of acting as a co-pilot. Looking at the article, uh, it says that the plane crew were amazed at her sensitive touch on the controls. There was no shaking or vibration and that she just sat and flew the plane uh, calmly and steadily. <laughs> and that uh, she, her, her response was, it was wonderful to feel the delicate movement of the aircraft through the controls. Wow, nerves of steel as a pilot. Impressive. But also impressive is that she wrote books. Yes, she was an author. And that again caused people to question her. But that didn't stop Helen. She was determined. And not only determined, she was exceptional and successful as an author. Susanna tells us all about that. She was a prolific writer. Uh, She wrote a number of books and many, many articles for magazines and other publications. Some of her best known books are um, obviously The Story of My Life. There was a second sort of volume of that, Midstream, which is her biography of her adult life. Um, She wrote The World I Live In, My Religion and Optimism. And she actually wrote uh, a biography of Anne Sullivan called Teacher. Helen wrote a book about her beloved Anne Sullivan who did so much to make her life much more awake, much more alive, much more engaged. So I wanted to know a little bit more about that relationship between Helen and Anne. Susanna, tells us a little more about that. 
Yeah, I think they had a, a very close relationship in part because, you know, Anne was really kind of Helen's connection to the outside world for a lot of her life and was crucial to her communicating and understanding the world around her. And um, when they, when Helen went to Radcliffe, Anne obviously went with her and sat through every class um, interpreting all of the lectures. And so they, I think it, they were incredibly close and, you know, Helen referred to her almost exclusively as teacher, not Anne or Miss Sullivan or anything like that. So it, it was, it was an incredible bond. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of respect for, for her, for the relationship. Absolutely. I think so. Helen is quite remarkable. She's off to college, off to Radcliffe, and going along with her is Anna to help her and assist her during her college career. I asked Jennifer to share with us what that experience was like. Yes, so so to start with, again, to put this in some historical context, it's 1900, not a lot of women are going to college yet. Um, that, that is still unusual in and of itself. Um, so just, just wanting to put it out there, because I, whenever I think about this, I always have to remind myself how rare it was at that point. But um, Helen was, was very much wanting to go to college from, from a quite early age. Um, and, and she was sort of very deliberately building herself towards that in her teenage years. Uh, she went to Radcliffe College, which was the women's college um, associated with Harvard University at that point. Uh, she entered in 1900, graduated in 1904. Uh, she lived both on campus and then later in an apartment near campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. During this time, she it, was, it became clear that she was a gifted writer. Um, and so she began writing with the um, encouragement of one of her professors, uh, Charles Townsend Copeland. Um, as she put it, he encouraged her to bake my own observations and describe the experiences peculiarly my own. Henceforth, I'm resolved to be myself, to live my own life and write my own thoughts. Her, her time, and that's sort of the beginning of her writing the articles that came the story of my life, her, her first book. Um, there are two sort of interesting stories from this. Um, she had a, 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 hard, a hard time socially um, because she was already well known at that point. And so it was sort of the, whenever she was trying to be a college student and just be social with her classmates, there was always this sort of people wanting to talk to her getting in the way, um, you know, people realizing who she was and, and sort of wanting to take over the conversation. Um, which is, you know, a complicated thing to negotiate sometimes. Yeah. Um, only one of her professors, Dr. Nielsen, he went on to become the president of Smith College, uh, learned the manual alphabet so he could communicate with her directly. Um, so that's hard. Like never being able to talk to your teachers directly is, is a different experience. There were concerns. So, so one of the things that has shown up on, on social media with people not being sure how Helen did all the things she did is, is this, there, there has been a sort of, persistent, but isn't it just Ann Sullivan doing all the work and pretending the answers are coming from Helen? Uh, the college was very aware of this concern. And so they took extensive precautions with exams. So Anne couldn't even be in the building. She couldn't be sitting outside on a bench. She, she had to be not anywhere nearby at all. They would bring in an independent signer um, who would convey the exam question to Helen. Somebody else would take Helen's bailed answer and transcribe it. Um, so there's sort of multiple checks and balances so that everyone involved could say, no, this is all Helen's work. We are absolutely sure it is Helen's work and Helen's work is good. Um, but but just the level of, of attention to that 
um, must have been sort of draining, you know, when you think about your own experiences taking exams, like that whole additional layer of having to to work with somebody whose who's sign you don't necessarily, you're not super familiar with, right. and to sort of know that you're being held to a higher standard in a particular way. And they actually, to um, address the sort of doubters of Helen Helen's work and exams, they actually kept her school, her exams in the registrar's office open for review by the public. And they did have people who came in um, to request to view them themselves. Still, still again, questioning it. Yeah. Wow. I can only imagine. I mean, that's, you know, to just be questioned and under scrutiny like that, you know, just would be, as you said, very tiring. Yeah. Just want to kind of go on with, with things, not always having to prove something. Okay, any other stories about her college life? Did, did she finish early or how many years did, did it take for her to go through a college career? That, that was a standard four-year um, program. So she she kept up with all her studies. She did quite well at them. Um, she started reading very, she had already been reading widely, but she was reading even more widely. Um, and so Anne Solomon was also doing a lot of work at this point, sort of um, either signing books that were in print that there wasn't a, a braille or, or tactile version of, mm-hmm. um, or otherwise sort of making sure she could get hold of all the information. Um, Helen also used, um, there, there were early braille writers at this point. Um, Helen also used a typewriter. So there was a lot of sort of which tool are we using today for the thing I need to do choice um, going on. She did a lot of um, English and philosophy reading is, is sort of the, the subject area that she did the most in. You know, it's interesting that they doubted her, that they doubted that she was the one taking the test, that she was the one who could answer and who could maneuver through her life, although deaf and blind, quite efficiently. Maybe this is what also inspired her to be an activist. I asked Jennifer to share with us Helen's life as an activist. Mm-hmm. Um, so she she spent her basically her entire adult life as an activist in varying forms. Some of this came out of her experience of disability. So she was an incredible advocate for workers' rights. And that that sometimes strikes people as why was she interested in that? But the, the real reason was that um, in the early 1900s, factory work was and actually still remains very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so you would have a lot of industrial um, injuries that led to blindness, to disability and brain forms. Um, and Helen was very sort of, she sort of was right in the middle of wanting to advocate for workers' rights. Um, so that, that if that happened, there were support for people who had become disabled through work, um, that, that maybe we had fewer injuries in the first place. That would be very good. Precautions that meant people were, were not working when they were exhausted and more likely to make errors that would lead to injury. Um, she opposed child labor for similar reasons. She was also involved in a number of other things. She was an ardent suffragist. Um, she donated $100 at the very beginning of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, in 1916. She was published in their newspaper fairly regularly. Uh, she was one of the co-founders of the ACLU, um, again, for because of all of these concerns around uh, labor rights and, and workers' rights. She, she sort of goes through a phase of, of being very actively involved in a broad range of activism. And then later on in her life, she sort of ends up focusing on uh, blindness and deafblindness specifically. She 
uh, helped found the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, which is the state, the Massachusetts state organization that provides services to people who are blind. Uh, there's something like that in, in pretty much every state, but it's called something different basically everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, she became the spokesperson for the American Foundation for the Blind. Um, and in that role, um, that's sort of the, the advocacy that most people know the most about. Um, she traveled to 39 countries. Uh, she advocated for others who are blind and deafblind, uh, especially around establishing schools. And one of the sort of longest lasting things that she did was um, she gave a speech in 1925 to the Lions Clubs at their annual convention, at, at calling on them to be Knights of the Blind and calling on them to lead uh, the Lions Clubs for people who don't know are, are sort of local organization uh, that does a lot of very local philanthropic work. So there's there's a Lions Club in a lot of different towns or a lot of, you know, every couple of towns might have one. Um, so they are very down on the ground. They sort of know the immediate area. They, they are local businessmen, businesswomen providing services or helping people get to services because they're right there. And so she called on them to take up blindness as a cause and we'll still see uh, they do donation drives for old glasses so that they can send frames and lenses that can be retooled um, to d- developing countries or um, making sure that people have access to um, accessible technology or all sorts of you know different pieces. So that that's one that has that has been going for almost 100 years now, and I I, I love that story. Helen was also a goodwill ambassador to Japan. So in 1948, she was sent to Japan as America's first goodwill ambassador uh, by General Douglas MacArthur. Um, and her visit, she visited both um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, and there's, there are these incredibly powerful photos of taken from somebody standing on the stage behind her. So you see her back and you see Holly's back. And they are facing out at a crowd of, you know, thousands of people just packed in the open space in front of the stage. Um, there to see her and to to listen to the, the the things that she was sharing about wanting to rebuild and wanting to advocate for people with disabilities, which is obviously an issue um, after the war, and and just trying to figure out how to do things better. Uh, also, calling attention to to the needs of Japan's blind and disabled population. Helen's life story is amazing. She led a phenomenal life where she overcame being deaf and blind to be able to accomplish so much throughout her life and also inspire other people. And not only people who are deaf and blind, but all people. So many people will say that they have been inspired by her determination, by her unwillingness to to stop and to give up, but to persevere and to keep going and to, to know that she can make a difference in the world for all people. To learn more about Helen and the Perkins School for the Blind, visit their website at perkins.org. There you will also see an opportunity to visit and tour the campus. For a truly immersive experience into Helen Keller's life, visit her birthplace home in Tuscumbia, Alabama. I asked Susan, who is the executive director at the birthplace home, to tell us about the experience when we visit. The home was built on the Virginia cottage uh, from the outside. Uh, It doesn't look like there's enough stairs, but it was built in 1820 by Helen's grandfather, David Keller, who came from Virginia. Uh, We still have uh, 85% of the furnishings belong to the Keller family. We still have the original floors. Uh, The pump is still where it was in the 1800s. And the cottage also next door 
it was used in early days as an office for Captain Keller. And then later it was used for uh, Annie Sullivan. We call it the schoolhouse. That's where she took Helen. But uh, the home is very, I guess you would say simple. It's not a huge home. Many people think, oh, in the 1800s, it had to be a big plantation. No, this is a, uh, a more of a Virginia cottage, but uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's a white framed house, green shutters, uh, very simple. Well, we have four rooms downstairs and we call two and a half rooms upstairs because there's a center room that was more of a trunk room because there were no uh, closets. Uh, during that time so they had to have wardrobes or you know somewhere to store their clothing and that was a sewing room as well but upstairs is the boys room and then you'll go down the hallway and that is ann sullivan's room and the small bed of course is the one helen slept in so they shared a room uh with each other and uh i'll tell you a little story about the upstairs bedroom helen got mad at the teacher one day and she locked her in the room and they couldn't find the key so Captain Keller had to get a ladder and Anne had to climb out that tall window upstairs. They said that Captain Keller wasn't happy and Sullivan wasn't happy, but Helen was sitting on the front porch and she could feel the vibration as the ladder was being slammed up against the house. And they said she just laughed and laughed and laughed. And then downstairs, <laughs> we have the master bedroom and the parlor dining room and then we have a uh, the other room we have turned into a museum room that has a lot of her books writings a statue just like the one that was uh, placed in statuary hall in 2009 and it has helen as a child at the pump and that is the only statue when you go to washington that you're able to touch and it's the only one of a child figure but our governor at the time governor riley insisted that Helen be placed there and have the pump and braille all around the base of the statue. It's really a neat thing to see when you come here because a lot of people won't ever make it to Washington so they can actually see it here. We have so many deaf people and blind people to visit. Uh, we have parents that have just found out that their child is deaf or blind. They will come here for inspiration Mm -hmm. And uh, when they arrive, if a child or an adult is blind, we take them into the different rooms and let them feel of the china, the silver, the clothing, because that's how blind people see is through touch. Mm -hmm. And then deaf people, we have a brochure that they can read as they go around. Susan also shares some of the special events and activities that they have throughout the year at the birthplace home. We just finished our 60th year of putting on the miracle worker on the grounds of the birthplace. But it, uh, the people love the dining room scene because it shows Helen throwing her temper tantrums, going around eating out of everyone's plate. And when she got to Ann Sullivan's plate, she slapped her hand and said no. And Helen didn't like that. So she started throwing food on the floor and they said she even broke some of the dishes. We're very fortunate. Uh, we have a few pieces of the original china still here. But Helen was known for throwing temper tantrums. So uh, children love uh, for us to tell about the temper tantrums in the uh, dining room. Mm. And then also, uh, which uh, in 2015, uh, a tornado took down the historic tree 
but uh, we had a beautiful water oak uh, down in the front yard, and it was over 240 years old, and uh, it came down. And, but they said that Helen was up in the tree one day, and a, a storm came. Well, Annie had to climb all the way up the tree to get her down because Helen was just sitting up there having a good time. She didn't realize a bad storm was coming. So uh, we uh, uh, always like to tell that as well. We take a wonderful event that we started seven years ago, and it's called Camp Courage, a Helen Keller experience. And uh, we invite children uh, who are visually or hearing impaired for a whole weekend. They come on Thursday and stay until Sunday morning. Uh, and it's completely free to the students and their parents. And they uh, get to come and they experience the Helen Keller experience. We have an opening dinner on the grounds on Thursday evening. The next morning, they do pottery making, uh, candle making. And what is so neat about their pottery we uh they design their own piece and then we take and had it fired and then in december we ship it back to the students wrapped up as a gift for their parents for christmas wow. but it's so amazing to see how the blind children use the cutters all over like if they do a bowl they will design it with cuts so they can feel and the deaf children, they usually just do a round bowl with fluted edges or, you know, something very simple. But I can always tell when a blind child has done uh, their bowl. And uh, the parents are in class. Uh, we always have uh, speakers to talk to them about uh, their rights, uh, what uh, the government offers them. It's a very unique camp. Fantastic opportunities for people to come and participate in different programs and activities at the Birthplace House. But now, as a dog lover myself, I had heard that Helen loved dogs. So I asked Susan if dogs are allowed to come to the Birthplace House for a visit too. Visitors all the time that will call and say, uh, we have a, a, a traveling uh, companion, our dog. Uh, uh, is it okay if we bring in the dog? And uh, we always say, of course, Helen loved dogs. Uh, she had one special dog when she was little called Belle. And then as she got older, uh, the Japanese gave her the first Akita dog that ever entered the United States. So Helen was the first owner of the first Akita dog. And then uh, in one of the pictures in the museum room, I think she had five dogs all around her. So she definitely loved animals. <laughs> Jennifer from the Perkins School for the Blind also shares a story about Helen's love for dogs. Uh, this was not like having a guide dog. This was just she liked dogs, but there were dogs in her life. That was good. Um, and so you you can sort of trace her life in photographs through looking at the different dogs and the, 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 the way that she's just so obviously happy and they're happy. And um, just that, that level of connection. Um, she also loved the natural world. There are there are lots of examples of her talking about things going on in the garden, wherever she was living. Um, we have lots of letters and some journal entries um, that sort of will just mention whatever's going on in the, the garden and what the dogs are doing today. And um, that level of, of contented sort of domestic natural world um, is something that I always really love about Helen and her writing. Now we are quarter miles travel, all about the U.S. Mint state quarters and the designs on the reverse side of the quarter. So Susan said she had a story to tell about 
the Alabama Quarter, and Helen Keller. So you know I wanted to hear all about this one. In 2003, Helen Keller was put on the state of Alabama Quarter. I, I don't think many people realize it, but that is the first coin in the history of our nation that has Braille on it. And the Braille is right above her name. So uh, when that coin came out, collectors grabbed them up very fast and uh, they were hard to come by. Our governor at the time, Governor Siegelman, he asked the sixth graders around the state of Alabama, who would you like to see on our state quarter? And Helen Keller was at the top of, uh, of the list. Uh, so that's how Helen got on our state quarter. Now, Quartermouth's Travel is all about travel. We hope that our discussions and stories about the designs on the back of the U.S. Mint State Quarters will inspire you to want to go to those states, visit the things that we've talked about, and see them for yourself. But now, when I talked to Susan, she gave me some other things to do if you're coming to the area of Tescambia, Alabama. Here's what she's here. The show is the hit recording capital of the world, Spain recording capital, I mean, Fame Studio, is where the movie Respect, uh, Aretha Franklin is coming out. Uh, Aretha recorded at Fame Studio. And uh, so Jennifer Hudson was here a few weeks ago filming uh, for the movie. And uh, so uh, we're very excited about that. And then we have another recording studio, 3614, uh, that's also in uh Sheffield, Alabama, which is only five miles from us. Uh, Muscle Shows is only five miles from us as well. But we ha- we are rich in history as far as music goes. Uh, we have a, a place down not too far, 10 minutes from here, called Rattlesnake Saloon. And that is a restaurant. And they actually put you in an old flatbed pickup truck. And they carry you down a bumpy road. And then you fall down into a cave and you get to experience lunch or dinner in the cave. So that's a neat place to visit. And we have the Coon Dog Cemetery, the only one in the world. Uh, And they have to have prize coon dogs in order to be buried there. And people from all over the United States come and bring their coon dog and bury it there. I've attended three funerals for dogs down at the Coon Dog Cemetery over the past few years. It's a neat place. We have so much to offer. In, uh, in the show's area. I'm sure you're like me and you're ready for a visit. I'll tell you, Helen Keller inspires us in so many ways to do so many different things. Now, I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Quarter Mouse Travel, where we featured the Alabama Quarter with the design on the reverse side, Helen Keller. I'd like to thank our special guests for sharing their knowledge and expertise about Helen Keller, her life, and her achievements. Susan Pilkington, Executive Director, Birthplace of Helen Keller. The Perkins School for the Blind, Susanna Court, Archivist and Research Library Assistant, Jennifer Arnott, Research Librarian. And Perrin McCormick, Director of Media and Public Relations at Perkins School for the Blind. Please visit the following websites for more information about the life of Helen Keller. Perkins.org, for the Perkins School for the Blind, for the Birth Home, visit HelenKellerBirthplace.org, HelenKeller.org, Britannica.com, and History.com. 
For more information about the U.S. Mint and their quarter programs, visit the website usmint.gov. This episode of Quarter Miles Travel is brought to you by our partner, Alliance Travel Insurance. They have all of the options to help you protect your travel investment. Visit their website at alliancetravelinsurance.com. Please make sure and subscribe so you have the latest, most up-to-date information on upcoming episodes of Quarter Miles Travel. Reach in your pocket and pull out a quarter. Flip it over and Quarter Miles Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure.